hour in between our services where we get to break open the can of life and faith and all of its many intersections and connections and even places where the two seem to not connect um, through a myriad of voices and perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. Lord, we thank you uh, for the diversity of creation. We thank you especially for art and the place it has in our lives, for the place it has in this church. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, so great to have you, everybody. Welcome to everyone online. Um, I mean for this uh, conversation to be a continuation of the last time I gave a forum, which was last spring at some point. I still think of everything in semesters, <laughs> spring and fall semester, which is not exactly right for church, but um, it kind of works. And uh, last spring, I did a presentation on the connections between faith and science. And uh, it was really great because I've done that presentation any number of times, dozens of times. And, um, and it, was a, it was an outflowing of work that I did on my dissertation, which is on like religion and philosophy. And I've never had scientists show up <laughs> wanting to talk science. So it was really great actually to talk with some actual scientists about my concept of science. And if I can just say like real briefly what the kind of like highlights were of that, because they'll, uh, so last time was about uh, faith in science. This time I intended to be about faith in art. Um, and I actually think of all these things playing a pretty intimate role with one another um, and really important for our larger like um, ability to articulate and make sense of what we're doing here. So just like real quick, the, the faith in science stuff, um, the caricature of science that I presented, caricature is not a good word. Um, the short synopsis of science, um, the, the tools that I had for working purposes for science, is that science is like really great at dealing with um, things that have yes or no answers um, that allow for a type of like rigidity, um, a type of definiteness that we just don't get in a lot of other ways in a lot of other areas of our life. Like for instance, figuring out the distance between the earth and the moon, that is like a knowable answer for which there are methods to figure that out. And it's not about um, fuzzy stuff, it's about like true or false. It either is this distance or it is not this distance. Now, when the scientists showed up last time, and if you all are watching this again, truly, thank you. And I look forward to talking again about it. And I need to do another forum that really tries to give them a, a lot more credit. Of course, science works in a lot of ambiguity also. Um, and that's partly what fuels people's interest in science is the things that it hasn't figured out and the things that seem really difficult to figure out. It's not just that we don't have the right tools yet, and it's not just that we haven't done the full investigation of some things, it's that some things, even in the world of science, will always remain nebulous and um, not obscure, but like will not have the type of concreteness that the distance between the earth and the moon will have. How are we doing so far? <laughs> okay, good. Um, but 
But there are some things in science that are just like black or white, you know, um, that they work towards a type of rigidity, towards a binariness, true or falseness, and that's like really good. This is really good. This is kind of the point that I was trying to make is that, that the types of things that science investigates, that they investigate them that way, it's like, that is good for all of us. This is why bridges don't collapse, um, or they don't collapse very often. Um, this is why, how we come up with um, antiviral medications and all sorts of like really great things is because science can look at something that is unknown and through a processes of procedures come to a, a definiteness and a conclusionness. And I want to contrast all of that to the world of faith. It's not that they are opposed um, in any fundamental way. It's that they're interested, again, in this kind of at least for the beginning part of the conversation, they're interested in very different things. The presentation I gave about faith is uh, to suggest that it's really close to like the world of relationships. So if you think about what makes sense about what makes relationships full and interesting and difficult and wonderful is that they are not binary that they are not definite in that same type of way. Um, relationships, the, the connectedness of relationships, they grow and they deepen and they become more full um, when we lean into the vulnerability of our knowledge of ourselves and our knowledge of others. So like the kind of real quick gloss handwriting is like thinking about my understanding of my children Sometimes, you know, um, one of the kids will say, I want to be this, <laughs> you know, and they're like all in. Uh, uh, astronaut or baseball player or dance or whatever. And it's like, there's no, you know, I mean, they're just full, full in. And sometimes they do those things because of explicit or implicit pressure from the parents, right? Kids oftentimes take the vocations of their parents, um, which is like a good and wonderful thing. Uh, as they grow up, sometimes they lose that identity, that interest, that sense of who they are. And um, what makes a good relationship good is our ability to adapt with them. My wife and I um, uh, were married in 2005, <laughs> 17 years ago, and uh, Jenna and I, I, the person that I married and the person that Jenna married, like, we are different people in pretty substantial ways, right? Um, uh, people change. They grow. Um, they deepen. They loosen. And the mark of a good relationship is being able to handle that uh, those ambiguities, those differences, those things that, um, uh, that are able to change, that don't have the same type of definiteness. How do you all feel about that kind of 10,000-foot um, view of relationships? Like the things that make them valuable is like wisdom, understanding, um, those two also have places in science, but I'm just trying to like work out a, a basic contrast. Any immediate thoughts or, or comments before we continue on? 
Okay, perfect, on the right track. Um, all right, so, you know, there's like a really great presentation here, and I'm not sure if I got it exactly um, uh, nailed down. But what I'd like to do is, um, so when thinking about the, the good of relation, the, the, that what makes relationships healthy, those are things that connect really well to faith, really well to our lives of faith. I grew up in, um, uh, uh, in the evangelical, uh, somewhat conservative uh, religious community, and it's really interesting. Um, my characterization of that when I was in high school is much different than my characterization now. Now I think like, I used to think, here's what I used to say. And, uh, uh, that community was really interested in a definitive religious knowledge. So like there was arguments for God's existence. The Bible was seen, was talked about in, in almost scientific terms, right? You have question A, the Bible gives answer B, and these things can be connected in a definitive way. Um, and I think that is actually true for some people in that community, but now as I get older, I think there's probably a lot of people in that community that didn't like care about that at all, you know? Um, it's, it's very interesting to think about how our understanding of community changes over time. The older I get, the more nuanced. Um, the, the people in that community that believe that way, I was drawn to because of my own blah, 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 okay, anyway. Um, so there's like a more nuanced thing to say about the community I grew up in that we don't have to go into. Sorry. Uh, but as a kid, I definitely thought of religion in what I would now call like a pseudo-scientific way. Um, that who God is, the claims that we make about God are not only are capable of being shown to be true, but the type of truth that they have is what now I would call a much more scientific model of truth. It has a type of rigidity. If you disagree with me, I can like argue with you um, and perhaps argue you into um, agreement or absurdity or something. That's how I thought about religion. And that's, it's, a, it's a way that religion is often portrayed um, in our contemporary society. I think of it as a, um, something that happened in like modernism with the development of science. We thought, oh, science is really great. Let's use that type of knowledge to like bolster religious knowledge. It doesn't matter uh, how it happened. Today, I want to present an alternative view of uh, religious belief. It's like relationships, but instead of using science as the compare and contrast, I want to use art. And I think actually art is a much more natural habitat for thinking about religion than science is. There is this really beautiful thing about science that we could go way down deep for, um, but that kind of caricature that I presented about science is the one that I want to compare and contrast it with. So what will help, um, before last weekend, I was going to do it, I was going to take art as a basis for thinking about religion and then use that to explore some interfaith 
um, dialogue. So how is it that we can think about different religious beliefs? How do we compare them, evaluate them? Um, of course, as a child, from the story I just told you, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that I thought that we could like evaluate different religious um, beliefs, different religious systems like Buddhism or Hinduism, Islam, against Christianity and come out with a definitive winner. <laughs> but just notice that's like something we could do in science. Do you know, it, it was just so natural to me. Um, and and it, it, rather, I would like to think about it uh, in, in, in artistic terms or in, in art criticism terms as being a much more natural habitat that's like more fruitful and also more interesting. But after last week, we did, we started our new liturgy, Year W, and I got lots of questions about that that were really great. And I actually think I'm going to, at the end of this, talk about liturgy, especially Year W, and um, what it can accomplish, what it's supposed to accomplish, how it comes about, and how we can evaluate it in these similar type of artistic terms. How many of you have an interest in art? See, this is also like really great. Art's so much easier to talk about <laughs> in lots of ways. Uh, okay, so uh, can I just start with like, um, what makes art great? Um, and, um, and how do we, uh, evaluate art, and I think the easiest way to talk about that is to say what art has moved you or what art you have found, like in your life, something that is um, really meaningful. Uh, and by art, I mean, um, of course, the stuff that's in the National Gallery, but also the stuff that's shown in movie theaters and in plays and in books. Um, yeah, can, it's, it, it's always, when I come up with the examples, it's like really great television from the 2000s, back when I used to watch television, um, like Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Um, and then when I talk about that a lot, people are like, what are you talking about? I've never seen that. So examples from the crowd, really great art. Yeah. This morning's paper. This morning's paper has a squarish, orange, pinkish. Yeah. If it's just a word, then I'll just repeat it. But if it's more than word, which I actually appreciate much more, then. Switch. Here we go. Okay. It's on. In this morning's paper, um, there is a picture and an article about a painting that was done in the 1700s that was sort of put away, but now it's been pulled out and it's, it's like tastes change and this is great art that was neglected. Yes. So art has, it has to touch people in a way that's contemporary to them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, contemporary to them. That's, that's 
it fantastic. Has to mean, yeah, it has to mean something to them. And I haven't finished reading the article. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a great, great part to start. Judy? What's the difference between art and propaganda? Okay, the difference between art and propaganda. It's like a plant. It's just like my science thing. Thank you, Bob. Yes, art and propaganda. Yeah, and we could just name several things here, um, and then I'll connect back to them. But am interested in just like a movie um, or a play or a book that you've read um, or seen recently that has really meant something to you. There's no judgment here, folks. What was that? Tar, the movie, yeah. Um, Catherine, do you mind saying a couple words about what made it great for you or interesting? Uh, well, Kate, Kate Blanchett's performance. Yes. Makes, I mean, that's just, uh, you want to watch that just for itself apart from the story. She was playing a um, conductor, symphony conductor, and so the conversation around music and what makes it work um, how different thoughts and emotions are generated, not only from the music itself, but from the story that the conductor tells and through their interpretation. Yeah. Um, and, the, and then apart from that, they did some interesting reflections on trends in society that were woven into the story that got my, my brain going as well as the musical education piece. Yeah, yes. Awesome, thank you. Uh, Okay, yes, so buy newspapers. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. So um, when I was thinking a lot about this, uh, the, the, there's very few um, philosophers who also did art really well. Um, Plato was one and Schopenhauer. Um, uh, but more recently, Iris Murdoch, who was a novelist, a 20th century British um, novelist, uh, studied with the guy that I did my dissertation on, this guy named Ludwig Wittgenstein, and um, she was like a really great student of his, and she also produced really great art, and also she reflected about like what makes art great. And here's like some of her suggestions, so uh, tell me what you think about this. Um, literature, which is what she wrote a lot about, but she also did stuff on um, kind of painting and sculptures, um, but in this, in this case, she talks about literature. Um, literature is bad when it is false. Art is bad when it's false. Words such as sentimental, pretentious, self-indulgent, trivial, and so on, impute some kind of falsehood, some failure of justice some distortion or inadequacy or understanding of expression. Bad art is a kind of fantasy, she wrote, whereas good art makes use of imagination. Imagination, as opposed to fantasy, is the ability to see the other thing, what one might call, to those who use old-fashioned words, nature, reality, the world. Or in a word, imagination seeks and discloses truth, whereas fantasy distorts the world by celebrating 
what she calls neuroses, the temptation to enclose ourselves into a world separated by dream objects of our own. What she calls neuroses, I call something like um, tribalism, like uh, the only thing that matters to us is the stuff that's directly connected uh, to me, my own interests. Okay, so just taking a step back here, um, a couple of things about this. Iris Murdoch thinks that primarily when we are evaluating art or when we are criticizing art, we are implicitly using ethical notions. I used to teach philosophy and I would do a section on art and, um, and my students uh, who were like oftentimes freshmen, you know, um, 18, 19 years old, and um, most of them um, w w refused the idea that, that art could be anything more than personal pleasure, individual private pleasure. If you, if you personally liked it, then it was good. <laughs> um, and if you didn't, then it was bad, you know? Uh, and there's a naturalness in that. But, um, but for Iris Murdoch, art and aesthetics is inherently connected to the ethical, which she defines as um, uh, a truthfulness, a truthfulness about the world. So good art uses imagination to investigate parts of the world. Um, Catherine Tarr, I haven't seen it, looks great, can't wait. Um, uh, but so many of those movies is like, you just do a deep dive into that person's world, into the conflicts, um, because oftentimes from the outside, you think, you know, why is there so much hubbub about the world of orchestra, <laughs> the world of, you know, um, and then we like deep dive. It, 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 tr good art brings a life into those things. Ledley. Yes, thank you. So let me just repeat to make sure I got it right, and also so the people online can hear. Um, did Iris Murdoch uh, talk about um, how uh, art is particularly framed in the culture that it arises as a comment on it or as a reflection of it, its, its cultural narrativeness? Uh, yes. And so, uh, this was originally going to be on uh, interfaith conversation, and I actually think this is a perfect example of how to get great interfaith dialogue off the ground. Um, the, the, the loose, oh, your question was about Iris Murdoch. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I actually think she has some good things to say that will be helpful here, and I'll get to them in just a minute, but as a touchstone here, um, it, just thinking about how art gets produced, um, and the different artistic schools and how those schools come about. I'm thinking about like how, and here I'm gonna um, 
unmask myself as not a particularly uh, um, nuanced uh, historian of art, but like how Impressionism evolved into Cubism or how Impressionism came about um, in itself. Um, and this is where it's all related to science in a really interesting, I think, way into like evolutionary terms in that art is produced through cultural tools and those cultural to tools are both explosive for imagination purposes, but also limiting. Um, when you think about uh, Monet uh, painting one of his landscapes, he's going to be limited by the tools that artists use for that production. Um, and so there is a limit. Uh, but I tend to think of that as like a great thing, right? The type of art that's going to be produced in um, France and Spain and the Mediterranean where Monet was is going to be very different than the art that's going to be produced in, in Japan. Um, I think like Every time I just said the word art there, if we substituted religion, we are like well on our way to having a very interesting discussion about how different people experience God. It's like deeply interwoven with our own evolution, um, how each cultures have come about, the things that we're able to name and the things that we're able not to name and shifting it from a scientific perspective, again, there's something interesting here to say about science. I'm not trying to be dismissive at all, but just noticing the categorical differences where our conception of science is that we're gonna to come to the same answer no matter the culture, right? Math is not dependent on um, uh, uh, cultural vagarities. Catherine's raising her eyebrows, and I'm just going to state as a, a place of uh, comparison that we're not going to go too far into, um, uh, but rather uh, when we're thinking about art, those same limitations don't seem as limiting. So just to make it plain. Um, if uh, I brought in the best European artists and best artists from China and Japan and uh, 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 Southern Africa and Northern South America, and I asked them all to represent this podium, we will get as many different representations as they are people. But because it's art, there will be less a sense of, now which one of those is the right representation? Right. Uh, okay. Now, here's where my students would have a problem in philosophy class, and they would say, well, if all of them are right, then that means that there's no truth trying to be communicated. And what I think is great about art is that actually each of these different things brings out an aspect of the world in sometimes a more truthful and in sometimes a more, what Iris Murdoch will call a more fantastical or fantasy way. Of course, when we're just talking about like a, a podium, the, it's like, well, what's the true ethical implication here? And this is why she focuses a lot on, on not movies as much because that was a kind of a newer medium, but definitely on literature. 
Bob, you wanted to ask about art and propaganda? This is like a perfect example, I think. Uh, and she often talks about um, uh, propaganda, specifically state-sponsored propaganda, as great examples of bad art. Where the, uh, the other example that she uses that I go into in a public forum, but I think is really interesting to name, is pornography for a similar type of reasons. That pornography and propaganda both trade on uh, projections of our fantasies that do not illuminate the world, it distorts the world. Um, our own self-interests over the interests of others. Whereas good imaginative art explodes the world in that it takes things that are unknown to us and makes them, um, uh, it, it characterizes them such that a, a world that I was not connected to before, I now am connected to in a way that feels compelling to me as a matter of just, I'm interested in human beings, um, but also in, in terms of justice. Alex. The bridge. Okay, uh, I have the mics, but so I have no expertise in, in art. Um, I do have some as an educator. Yeah. And one of the concepts that this, is make, this discussion is making me think of is a discussion about how to bring rich texts into the classroom to support literacy development. And there are some texts that are really sort of rich and support a great learning environment and some that are not. And one of the characteristics of really great texts to, to bring to students is that they support um, the asking and, uh, of really deep and open questions um, yeah. as opposed to sort of closed questions. And not yes. all books can do this, right? But the best books, you can sort of keep asking questions and draw out lots of different answers and unexpected answers and different students can look at the story and come to different sorts of conclusions, you know, uh, on what's going on with, with different characters. And again, yes. some books are sort of not designed in that way and are more closed off. Um, and so, I don't know, that seems related. Maybe it's an analogy to this sort of propaganda, you yes. know, question where propaganda sort of has a closed, uh, you know, meaning as opposed to supporting this sort of open um, interpretation. Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about, uh, I mean, we're, we've all been exposed to propaganda, um, and especially its um, malignant effects with elections. I'm thinking about Ukraine specifically. Um, yes, that, you know, I mean, uh, I have no expertise in propaganda, for instance, but um, my kind of like gloss on it is that like what Iris Murdoch calls a neuroses and I call tribalism is a perfect example of, of um, propaganda seizing on like latent fear um, that are specifically defined by certain groups and just blowing them up, um, exaggerating them in a way that closes our world, closes our world. Uh, whereas imagination, good art, um, uh, allows for a, uh, a, a flowering, a blooming that 
So when I was characterizing relationships as a type of like vulnerability and um, um, a willingness to uh, change and grow as opposed to like a binariness or on and offness, that's, yes, that's exactly what I think. And what's so great, really what's so great about art and here again, I, I, we just don't, uh, there's a long, much longer conversation about the interconnectedness with faith. But here again, I feel like every time I'm saying art, I could substitute the word Bible or some of the, the stories that we read on Sunday. The multivariance of them um, is really profound. So profound that for 2,000 years, communities have been reading these things and they're still writing books about them. I remember once I was, um, uh, studying abroad at, in Oxford, and um, there was a, a lecture hall. And, uh, it was on the Gospel of John, and the professor printed out a, like a 15-page bibliography of books written on John in the last 20 years. And somebody was like, she said that uh, one of her colleagues was just shocked. She was like, I didn't, you know, like, why still write stuff about John, <laughs> you know? And part of that, of course, I mean, there's lots of answers to that, but part of it is that really great art, really great stories um, uh, can be read on so many levels and are living texts in a way. One thing that Iris Murdoch said about um, art is that love, um, she thinks of love as the kind of chief goal of art, which is really interesting and like, again, kind of another topic for conversation, but it connects so well with faith on this point. She said that love is the nonviolent perception of difference. Love is the nonviolent perception of difference. What makes art, and I think here religion, our faith, our scriptures, sharing the space, is encountering something that feels and by different, I mean like worlds apart. Like, um, how do I connect with this? Um, and yet receiving that, not in a um, judgmental, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of different words for violence, um, not in a way that makes me want to silence um, that difference uh, instead of, my own neuroses, my own sense of um, being out of the loop, trying to end the conversation, but accepting that difference um, uh, uh, from a point of interest and intrigue. Okay, I want to say a couple words about liturgy real quick. <laughs> Why not, you know? <laughs> um, in the back of uh, the bulletin, there's um, a couple of notes, um, a couple of notes about our liturgy that's happening this, this season. We're calling it Year W. Um, year W is a, a liturgy that combines both prayers, so like the, um, the opening acclamation, um, blessed be God is our traditional one, and also the lectionary, and the lectionary is the group of readings that we have about the Bible. The lectionary is based on a new translation by an Old Testament professor, a black woman, womanist theologian, and, um, and uh, 
So, yeah, I, I want to stop because I want to have questions. Um, but in that note, try to, I tried to connect some of the larger themes about what I take good art to be, which is like a, a, imagination exploding our view of the world um, instead of uh, reducing it into smaller and smaller circles. And I'm not gonna answer this question, um, but I think it's worth asking whether this new lectionary, this new liturgy serves as good imagination or as fantasy propaganda. And oftentimes, I think when people are having a disagreement, this is what the disagreement is over. So for instance, just to anticipate some of the objections that not necessarily anyone in this congregation has given to me, but I've heard from other people, is that the naming of God as a woman um, or God as woman is a type of fantasy. It's not based in reality. It has no basis for um, being used. It's something that we do for kind of uh, neo-democratic, liberal uh, values. Or, yeah. It's like pretty cold characterization of what someone might object to, but there it is. Um, whereas, <laughs> I believe, for instance, um, that the, the divine feminine is something that's deeply rooted both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 2,000 years of Christian tradition of thinking very contemplatively about the divine feminine, um, and yet it doesn't exist in a lot of our forms of worship as a Christian community, um, especially in the West. In the East, it does a little bit more. And so, uh, both wanting to recognize an inherent tension and uncomfortableness in doing something that's very different, but also trying to think about the greater values of art and religion and trying to tie that to imagination. That's my presentation for today. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Okay, but we have a, a couple of minutes. I didn't mean to talk so long. I always do this. Um, Alex, do you have another question? I'm gonna put the thing on the mic if, uh, or I could hand it out. Yeah, Bob, please help me out here. The divine feminist, feminism yeah. Is appealing to me. Yes. Because uh, things are so, have been so screwed up under divine masculinity. Yes. Yes. And I look around me and I see oft times that women do a much better job. <laughs> yes. Do you mean like in governance, in, in corporations, in, in raising families? Just all the way down to the classroom. Yes. Yeah. Uh, macro and micro. Thank you. Actually, actually when um, Bob. Actually, when Bob said that, I was thinking how limiting um, the male is as well. It's not only male and female, they're both limiting. Yes. Because they encompass, because God encompasses everything, the whole spectrum. Right, yes. And so any, any word in some ways is limiting. 100%, yes, exactly, yes. Um, Yes, uh, the, way, the way I'd have the philosopher Wittgenstein say it is like, every word can liberate and every word can enslave. Like I read this really interesting New York Times opinion article from a guest writer, it's kind of a throw off or whatever, but it was against like using the word um, resilience 
Um, we've got to stop using this word because we've been telling people who are suffering, they just need to be more resilient, you know? And I was like, oh, there's like something there. But also at the same time, the problem isn't resilience. <laughs> the problem is something like worse. It's um, uh, the, the people who have cultural power trying to silence the people who are raising serious objections and like using, anyway. So like words, any word could be abused. You know, and same way with art, same way with God. And so in the note, I tried to say how um, one thing that is from the very beginning of the Bible that continues on to like the great theologians who are writing still is the unnameableness of God. That, that is a central value of, of religious communities. And yet, also, at the same time, the deep need for us to give thanks, uh, the deep need to name God. And so we live in the tension of both recognizing that our words are limiting and culturally in, in, inhibited and also sometimes ethically corrupted, um, as I do think um, the only being able to talk about God in masculine language is a type of like corruption um, uh, on the one hand. And, and also like, we've got to do something. <laughs> and so this is our church. This liturgy is our churches, um, a whole bunch of people, both in the building and outside of the building, trying to think deeply about living into that imaginative space where art and religion connect. I, I also wanted to mention that um, Comparing art and liturgy reminded me of something that Bill Tully, say 30 or 40 years ago, said that is that I've, that has stuck with me. It's that the liturgy is there every week. It's the same in a way. It changes slightly because yes. the gospel and things change, but the, the construct is there every week. And we come every week in. in whatever state yes. we're in. Changed and not changed. changed. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that has kept me actually intentionally coming yes. to church, that yeah. I know that it's there as yes. this constant, and I'm there as this um, up and down thing going on. Man, thank you, Alice. I kind of think that, um, so in what ways can we like, there's different ways to object to art, I think. And the way that I usually mostly object to art is I'm not interested. Like I had a friend in, in, in graduate school who was really into heavy metal. Um, and he was like, this is better than that. And you know, here's some stuff. And I listened to it and I was like, I'm just not interested. <laughs> it's not that I think it's bad, it's just I don't get it. You know, so sometimes when I've had students object to what I call great art like Shakespeare, they're like, oh, Shakespeare's awful, I can't stand it. I'm like, no, you're not interested. You don't know enough to make a judgment. That's not to say that Shakespeare has to be good or whatever, but anyway, but it's the, it's the, like the drilling into it that gives it good. So that's what I think about church. The more we come, <laughs> I mean, of course, as a priest, I'm going to think this, the more we come, the deeper we can get into it. Um, uh, Henry Nouwen, who is this uh, famous theologian and spiritual writer, and this has got to be the last thought, um, uh, was doing a book on um, um, the prodigal son, uh, the, the painting by famous painting. Renaissance finish. 
cute. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And uh, it was a painting in Russia, and he went to the painting um, um, at different hours each day to observe it, right? <laughs> because he's changing, the light in the room changes, um, and that, that to me is the, is the great beauty of really interesting, great things like our Holy Scriptures, like our liturgy, like art, is the more that we connect with it in the various periods of our life. I've been reading the story of Jesus' birth since I was five, you know? Um, uh, the deeper it gets into us and, the, and, and sometimes the stranger it gets, and it's in the strangeness that the, like, the, real, the real value is. All right, Janet, last word. As Ludley pointed out, you have to lean into what you're reading because I think the more you, I think the more you lean into it, the better you understand it. Yes, thank you. Y'all, uh, thanks for uh, listening, even if you were a captive audience. Uh, thanks to you uh, online. Look forward to hearing more comments and continuing the discussion later. <laughs>